Hi everyone, welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol and I just want to thank you for tuning back into our series on Israel, Israel's anointing. And we only have a couple of episodes left. So I just want to take a moment and thank you all for tuning in and for the feedback we've gotten from many of you. We are so glad that you've enjoyed it and found the series helpful. And that's our goal. We would just want to produce content that is helpful. I also just want to take a minute and thank all of our podcast patrons who support this program financially. We truly couldn't do any of this without your support. So thank you very much. And if you would like to consider becoming a podcast patron for as little as $5 a month, please click on the link located at the description of this episode. Well, today is episode 10, the ties that bind Israel, Egypt, and Iran. And today is Egypt. You know, in putting together this episode and the one on Iran, I tell you, I am truly amazed at the majesty and sovereignty of God. I'm already amazed by that. But then he reveals something else. And it just, it's, it's really astounding to me. We can never reach the depth of understanding in truly knowing him. But boy, oh boy, the process sure is fun, isn't it? Well, at least to me. Well, as I said in the beginning of this series, God is committed to having a family. And since his ways are not our ways, nor his thoughts our thoughts, the way that he went about it confounds many of us to this day. Beginning with Abraham, he widened the reach of his family tree through the orchestration of cross-cultural marriages, and in doing so, produced an enormous family that populates the whole Middle East. He then used those members of his family in those nations to see to it that his promised seed, his covenant, was protected and preserved. And two of the nations that he used in particular was Egypt and Iran. Today we'll be talking about Egypt, how God used them, and then at the end of the episode, their prophetic future. And in the next episode, we'll talk about Iran the same way. Now, when it comes to Egypt, it became not only a land of testing for God's people, but also the womb from which he would birth the nation of Israel. The first time Egypt is mentioned in the Bible is after Abraham responds to his encounter with God in Genesis 12. God had just made Abraham a promise that included descendants, land, and making him into a great nation. But he would have to move to Canaan to receive it. Well, no sooner does Abraham arrive with his family to Canaan that a famine hit the land. And so to deal with this crisis, God sent them all to Egypt. Now, we don't know how long they lived there, only that God used his time there to not only preserve their lives, but he did so by having them live in Pharaoh's house of all places. And then when it was time to leave, they left with more than they came with, namely a bondservant for Sarah named Hagar, the woman through whom Abraham's lineage would begin, which made Egypt the first nation brought into God's promise to Abraham. The next time we hear about Egypt is in a story involving Isaac's son, Jacob's sons, Jacob's sons, he had 12 of them, one in particular was named Joseph, and Joseph was being sold by his brothers into slavery, eventually ending up in Egypt. And this story is found in Genesis 37. You might already know the story. Joseph was a dreamer, and he was having a lot of dreams, but that his dreams were that one day his brothers would kneel at his feet and honor him. Well, 
He told his brothers about his dreams. They became jealous and plotted to kill him. They threw him in a pit instead and then decided to sell him to some traders who were passing by on their way to Egypt. And the traders that just so happened to be passing by, well, they were Ishmaelites and Midianites. Ring a bell? Jacob's sons sold their brother Joseph unknowingly to their cousins. Ishmael would have been their great uncle. Only God could have orchestrated an event like that to protect and preserve the seed of promise by keeping it all in the family, sparing Joseph, who is now a slave, from whom their families would ultimately be saved. And so through God's sovereign leadership, he was now joining together the destiny of the sons of Isaac and the sons of Ishmael, allowing both of them to participate in the greatest story of redemption ever told. These cousins not only saved Joseph from being murdered, they carried him to Egypt where he would one day rise to power as the second greatest in all the kingdom, second only to Pharaoh. And in this position of authority, He would become the catalyst that saved Egypt and his family in Canaan when another family threatened their lives. Because of that famine, Joseph's brothers came to Egypt seeking help from the viceroy of Egypt for their survival, and through this encounter discovered that the viceroy of Egypt was none other than their brother Joseph. Well, long story short, they were reconciled, sent for their father Jacob and the rest of their families, and they all came to live in Egypt. Joseph even gave them the choicest land of Goshen, which was very fertile, a great place to raise their families and care for their livestock. Joseph also brought his father Jacob to meet Pharaoh. And someone like me who likes to ponder a lot of different things in Scripture, I read that and then I wonder to myself, wow, In that conversation, did Jacob share with Pharaoh that his grandfather Abraham at one point once visited and lived in this very palace during a different time of famine? It's just kind of fun to think about. I'm not sure, but in that exchange, in that conversation, it says in the Bible that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And so now you have the patriarch of the patriarchal covenant, Jacob, whose name changed to Israel, now living in Egypt like Abraham once did, establishing God's purposes over that land for future generations. Egypt is now positioned to provide for and preserve the ancestors of our Messiah. And not only that, release the nation of Israel into her destiny. For Egypt would become the womb that would birth a nation, a nation that would bring forth Jesus Christ. And God used Ishmaelites, Midianites, and Egyptians to carry and bring Israel into this destiny. And he's not done with them yet. Next to Israel, Egypt is the most mentioned nation in the whole Bible. While Israel is referred to as my people by God throughout Scripture, It's interesting to note that Egypt is the only other nation in the Bible to be addressed the same way. In Isaiah 19, 25, blessed be be Egypt, my people. Well, when Joseph and Pharaoh died, another Pharaoh rose to power who felt threatened by the children of Israel 
because of how much they had grown as a people group. So he made them slaves. He afflicted them in order to prevent them from multiplying anymore. But that didn't work. The harder the affliction, the more they grew, to the point where he made a plan to kill all newborn boys. You know the story. And it was from this decree that a little boy named Moses was spared. And he would find himself being raised up in Pharaoh's household. Yet again, God used Pharaoh to preserve his seed. Well, that's where Moses lived until one day when he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave and killed him for it. And in his fear of being found out, he fled. And where did he flee to? He found himself in the land of Midian, distant relatives from hundreds of years ago. I mean, you can't make this up. You can't make this stuff up. Moses was among the Arab people, Ishmael and Keturah's descendants. And from them, married a Midianite woman, not a woman from the line of Isaac. And it was here in Arabia that God visited Moses on the mountain he was shepherding through a burning bush. And the angel of the Lord spoke to him. This angel of the Lord is believed to be the pre-incarnate Christ who once encountered Hagar and Ishmael. Here he is now seeking out Moses to deliver his people from Egypt, revealing himself to Moses in a place where the family of Ishmael and the Midianites would become witnesses and partakers of what was about to take place. I mean, ponder that. After all, it was their family that brought Joseph to Egypt to begin with. And later, After bringing the people out of Egypt through the Exodus story, Moses brought them to a place where they could learn about God and how to worship him, a place called Mount Sinai. Now, this is what's interesting. The traditional location of Mount Sinai today is the mountain called Jebel Musa, right? Which looms over St. Catherine's Monastery in the southern Sinai Peninsula. Jebel Musa's identification as Mount Sinai developed in the early Byzantine period with the spread of monasticism into the Sinai Desert. But curiously enough, no Exodus-related archaeological remains have been recovered there, and so now that location is being disputed. Instead, another location is being investigated. Midian in northwest Saudi Arabia, the very place Moses ran to, when escaping Egypt. You see, in the 1980s, a couple of explorers announced that they had discovered the true biblical Mount Sinai. And several years later, a family living in Saudi Arabia captured images of the proposed site and gave evidence to their story. For years, many people claimed Exodus was a myth because little to no evidence existed for what the Bible records. However, at this particular site in Midian, In Saudi Arabia, it's a different story. The mountain of God, Mount Sinai, also referred to as Mount Horeb in the Bible, sits in contrast to the tradition archaeologically empty Sinai of Jebel Musa in the Sinai Peninsula. In the Jabal el-Law's mountain range of Saudi Arabia sits extraordinary evidence to the Exodus story. 
the uniquely blackened mountain peak that is locally called Jabal Makla, the burned mountain. There is also what is believed to be Elijah's cave from 1 Kings 19.8 when he fled from Jezebel and he went as far as Horeb and dwelt in a cave there. There's Moses's altar and there's the altar of the golden calf with Egyptian carvings carved into the rock of it. There's the remains of the 12 pillars that would have been built according to the word of God in Exodus. There's the corral that was used for animals for sacrifice. There's also the split rock of Horeb, four stories tall, split cleanly down the middle. And there's a very large ancient dry lake bed that surrounds the split rock, all in an area that gets only an average of a half inch or 1.5 centimeters of rain a year. When the Hebrews and the mixed multitudes came out of Egypt, friends, there was an estimated one and a half to two million people in total. They also came with their cattle and livestock, which all needed water. So you can imagine the amount of water that had to come forth from the split rock in order to supply this great demand. And now one can easily see. Today, if you see the split rock in person, it is highly eroded and flaked from a great water pressure. There's also a high plateau on Sinai, giving evidence to Exodus 24, where the elders met on the mountain. Not to mention the path leading from the Red Sea to Midian, going through Elam, the place with 12 springs and 70 palms, all still there. I encourage you to look it up. Jabal al-Laws, L-A-W-Z. It's remarkable. And it's been sitting there, hidden, in plain sight, as a witness to the Arab people, the descendants of Ishmael, for over 3,300 years. Perfectly preserved all this time, only to be revealed today. God knows how to draw people to the truth, doesn't he? You see, the close of this age is drawing nearer, and the God of this age continues to blind people to the truth. Evil is waxing worse and worse, and the faith of many is in flux, isn't it? Even belief in the Bible's authenticity is waning, and people are searching elsewhere for a spiritual connection in an attempt to save themselves. What a time to lift the lid on one of the greatest stories ever told, proving the God of the Bible true and opening the eyes of faith to Abraham's descendants once again. And not just them, but the rest of the world. Even the Apostle Paul, after his encounter with Jesus in Damascus, went to Arabia for three years, Galatians 1, before he began his ministry work. He even says in Galatians 4.25 that Sinai is in Arabia. If this is the case, that means Moses brought the people, almost two million people, to Midian, the home of their distant relatives. This would have been the first time the descendants of Ishmael and Isaac would have been united together since the days of Abraham. I mean, that blows my mind. That's why we have to tread lightly on the situation in the Middle East today, friends. God knows how to judge evil. He knows how to judge good. He knows who's corrupt. 
He knows who's righteous. He knows where every person in his family lives and what their circumstances are. He knows how to deal with the nations. He knows how to save souls and he knows how to unite people back together because what is impossible with man is possible with God. And guess what? Egypt, (laughs) this is another thing. Egypt was used as a servant of God to serve Abraham's descendants, just as Noah's curse said it would. When Noah gave the curse to Ham, it was that he would be a servant to Shem. And where did Ham's descendants settle? Egypt. And Egypt did exactly that served Abraham and his children, Shem's descendants, even up to the advent of our Messiah. When Herod had called for the annihilation of every male child in Bethlehem under two years old to protect his son, God appeared to Joseph in a dream, Matthew 2, 13 to 15, and instructed him to go to Egypt. God's word is true, and he watches over his word to perform it even words spoken in the days of Noah. Since the days of the Old Testament prophets, many of the prophecies about Egypt have been fulfilled. The glory of the pharaohs is long gone, and Egypt is not as powerful as it was in antiquity. As the prophets had foretold, Egypt became a home of rebellion and internal conflicts. God said that Egypt would be smitten, but he also promised that she would be healed. Isaiah chapter 19 gives us a glimpse into that healing. Read Isaiah chapter 19. Judgment will come to Egypt, but so will mercy and blessing. In verse 23 to 25 of that chapter, it says, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. God reveals his plan to align Egypt with Israel and Assyria, and what's truly astounding about these verses is that titles once reserved exclusively for God's chosen people of Israel are also granted to Egypt and Assyria. And if you look at the map of the region in Isaiah's day, you'll notice that the empire of Assyria spread over a vast area. What used to be Assyrian land then belongs today to countries like Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, part of Iran, even Turkey and Cyprus. Together, The nations mentioned in Isaiah 19 represent several modern countries that compose the core of the Middle East today. Take a moment to take that in. The most turbulent part of the world is outlined in Scripture with a promise that these people will come together to worship. Is that in our lifetime or is that in the Messianic age? I don't know. But God will bless them and they will be a blessing on the earth. And if it is in our lifetime, like any nation, it will most likely be a remnant because God always reserves a remnant, a people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And if God's word was still performing from Noah to Christ, then I am of the mind that this word will be performed too, just as he said. 
Egypt in particular was a nation that showed the greatest hostility to God and his people. But for the purpose of demonstrating God's grace, Egypt is destined to attain the full blessings of salvation first bestowed upon Israel. Those who try to exterminate God's people will now be drawn to the majesty of the God of Israel and will one day make their way to Jerusalem each year, according to Zechariah 14. So pray for Egypt and the remnant that will be raised up for this purpose. Egyptian Christians live amongst great uncertainty, making up only 10% of Egypt's population. And despite increased persecution, though, the churches of Egypt are growing. Because the Christians there, they hold on to a couple of things. The magnificence of God using Egypt in the Exodus story, and how he used Egypt to protect the family of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. Therefore, They have faith in the promise of Isaiah 19, giving them hope for their nation. I hope this blessed you today. I know it blessed me. It just makes me so excited because, you know, we walk by faith and not by sight. And that's my encouragement to you today as you keep continuing examining the situation in the Middle East. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you for the feedback. Thank you to all of our podcast patrons. And again, if you would like to support this program, please visit the link that's found in the description of this episode. God bless you today.